Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark, episode 103, Friday, the 4th of October 2019. And another week has gone by, Mark. The weeks get quicker and quicker and we get older and older. What have you been up to? Well, it's interesting that you make that point, Brendan, because I travelled from sunny Newcastle to Sydney on the weekend to spend the day with my father for his 85th birthday. And fantastic. Spending the day with Dad for his 85th birthday did make my mind dwell on that whole ageing theme. So it's interesting that you start our whole session today, the whole podcast, with a comment about us ageing because that's been playing yes, on well, my mind. Yes, well, as you know, I did... Uh, and we spoke about it off air. I did spend half a day with my lovely mother, and uh, it was good. We we took a whole lot of a lot of food over to her um, because she lives on her own, as you know. And she's still every day, and as I mentioned to you, every day since Friday, so for almost a week. When I speak to her, she says, "Oh, gee, I'm having some more of that ham, and I'm having some more of the cheese, and I'm having some more of the." chutney and the and the um, little bits and bobs that we got so she, we had a great day and it was good to see her because I hadn't seen her for probably three months mark even though I try and phone her every day I'm trying to be that, a good son and um, she heads in for that surgery that I mentioned um, recently she heads in for surgery in, in a week so yes it sucks getting old, doesn't it, Mark? Is all I can say. Um, it although sucks it's indeed. good, yeah. Um, and it, it, the, so the interesting thing with Dad, the thing that um, that I found a bit fascinating was, um, so he's he that once you get to a certain age and age starts to take its toll, the the um, what do they call themselves up here? The I don't know the, the the traffic people, the people who run licences. You've got to do tests ah. again, and they and he. Um, so he current the current. I think once you're eighty, that you've got to do a test. And the last lot of tests he did, they restricted him to daylight. His vision is not that good at night anymore. Um, and they've limited the distance, so he's got to stay within fifty kilometres of home. And um, and he was pretty happy. He was pretty chuffed with that. But this this eighty fifth one, I, I think he got a little bit worked up about the possibility that they might go. You know what? You can't yes. do this anymore. Um, so he was really really worked up about the test. Like coming up to it, he was um he was well a little bit like me sitting histology in. In second year, I sort of thought the analogy was, um, and um, and but he passed it, and you could just see the weight lifted off his shoulder, and it struck me that that uh, independence, however, you know, however controlled it is, um, it's it's a very important thing to humans, and um, to the loss of independence, the 
the inability to, like he hardly ever gets in the car, but just the chance that he might want to get into it and in the daytime and travel less than 50 kilometres is really, really He must important. have been wrapped and he just shouldn't have done the donuts and stuck his middle finger up as he was heading out of the testing <laughs> centre there, Mark. Um, I've got to, I'll tell you what, this is um amazing similarity here. Um, i got two stories, um, Mark. Um, my my father, who is no longer with us, as you know. Um, and in Victoria here, you don't need to retest your car licence at any stage, and I think you need to because it's amazing. Every week you're, it seems almost that you hear on the news that somebody, some older person has has accidentally put their foot on the accelerator instead of the brake and and um, caused some grief. And my father did exactly that when he was heading out. I think he'd taken he'd taken mum mum when they were still managing to get up and about and head to their local little church that they went to. Um, he hit the accelerator instead of the brake as he was coming out of the parking lot and shot across the road. I don't know why I'm laughing, but it was quite funny at the time when I heard about it. Um, shot across the road uh, through a brick um, front fence and um, into a front yard of somebody across the road from the church, Mark. Um, no injuries and... Uh, he, oh, I think he kept driving after that, but the but the tip, <laughs> I, no, actually no, he didn't. He he. I must admit, I I I was proud of him. He said, "Well, I think I better stop driving." Um, so and he did. He, he stopped driving after that. And the second one is um, just quietly. We won't hope that she doesn't listen to the podcast. Uh, my dear wife Annie, her mother, up until last year, uh, would pick up. Um, and his brother's son, so my nephew from primary school, so who's in year six, um, and they would drive down, um, the two grandparents would drive down and sit in the car park to pick him up and um, he um, he hopped in the back of the car, um, um, asked that the granddad was in the in the passenger side and, and then his mum in, in the driver's seat and um, same sort of thing happened. Um, uh, and she, she, she's fairly belligerent about things. Um, I must admit. And she said she'd never, um, you know, it wasn't the accelerator. The brakes stopped. You know, the brakes didn't work. As, and that's often what you hear on the news stories that the brakes didn't work. Um, and she, she did the same thing. She hit the accelerator instead of the brake, and it was a bit of a, bit of a car park rage happening. I think because you know what it's like with school pickup time. Um, and she just went into the back of the car in front and I then she thinks she stuck it in reverse and did the same to the car behind <laughs> oh, oh, no. and then spun the wheels and got out of there, um, I think. So, <laughs> but she's still driving. Um, yeah, so it's a, a very common scenario, I think, with with um, people as they age and probably that's what will happen with us not too far distant future, mate, oh. um, <laughs> that we um, accidentally hit the wrong hit the wrong um, little lever um but the, i think the good thing for our our younger listeners is um it will be fairly soon and i tell my kids i don't know what you say to your kids mark but to my girls i say to them look your children will grow up with no petrol or gas powered cars they will be electric powered cars and and probably all of them will be mainly at least uh, um computer controlled ai controlled like like the tesla mark so um 
you know, and um, you know, I don't know how many of them will be actually driving the car as such, and that they'll just be sitting in the vehicle. I reckon you're right. I reckon 15 or 20 years down the track, it'll be um, just there'll be occasional, um, you know, uh, people who who have have hung on to their car. um, Yes. Exactly, and they drive it around. They'll have special locations. They won't be able to go um, on, you know, the normal roads where the vehicles are just a foot apart and and uh, travelling along at hundreds of kilometres an hour with their AI controlled um, yes. travel. Um, it will be interesting. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, that's my story about um, car crashes. But, yeah, I, I, I must admit, even though we're slowly heading towards that sort of um, age bracket mark, um, we're still a fair way off, thank goodness, um, that I think all states and territories and countries should have laws where they do test people when they hit a certain age and certainly over, you'd think over 80, um, you'd need to do that. Yeah. Um, hmm. And I've got some exciting news, Mark. Um, I Tell me I your don't news. know whether you saw it. Did you see? Check your email. Um, we had an email come in just as we're recording here, and it explains a lot. Yeah. And I'm going to read out this whole email from Mike. And it is Hello, Vet Gurus. This is a bit of a delayed email, and I think I'm a bit late to enter your competition, unfortunately, but I wanted to say how well you are, Mike. You didn't win, and um, good luck next time. I'm a new graduated Canadian vet doing an externship at the Suncar Falcon and Hawk Farm in the great Almaty Gorge of the Tian Shan Mountains in Kazakhstan. And this explains it all, Mark. It, it does. And I'll read the rest of his email. It is an amazing eye-opener here, and there are many stories I can tell when I return home to Quebec. And perhaps, Mike, we need to get a few of your stories and maybe even we should do a – we might even get you on the podcast when you get back back home. I think we should, definitely. So um, we're going to dob you in, Mark and, uh, Mike, and you will be on our podcast. Um, and his final paragraph is, I just wanted to say hi and that all of us vet staff, in brackets several Western vets but also some Kazakh vets, listen weekly to your podcast and could explain the fan base you have here in Kazakhstan. Keep up the great work, guys. Huge fan here. Best wishes, Dr. Mike Oxmall. Thank you, Mike. Well, there you go. Our mystery has been um, – has been solved, Mark. We, we, you were concerned that it might be um, using I, a I VPN was. and that people are, are rerouting um, all their all their podcasts listening through Kazakhstan, but we do have listeners <laughs> in Kazakhstan. And thank you, Mike, and hello to all the Kazakh vets. And, um, yeah, send us an email. T- send us some photos. I'll tell you what, send us a few photos of um, – of, um, the mountains there and uh, some of the falcons or hawks that you're treating and we can put them up on our website, can't we? And we would we would dearly love to um, have a talk to Mike and um, maybe explore what happens at the Suncar Falcon and Hawk Farm. We would love to. So yeah, fantastic. That's made my that's made my week, Mark. That um, that, that solution <laughs> to that conundrum or that concern we had about um, our big listenership in Kazakhstan. So there we go. Um, I think we better jump into some news stories, Mark. I think you are going to take the first one. Yes, I am, Brendan. My first one um, is uh, it's it, it's a 
quick article about um, how migrating birds, the, the complications of migrating birds, and um, this actual article talks about um, garden warblers, which are a common species across Europe, and they undertake a massive migration each year, travelling um, to the sub-Saharan Africa, to the part of um, Africa for the winter, to where it's a bit warmer and, and they can maintain things. But um, those small birds travelling from Europe down to Africa, the trip takes a lot out of them. And, and um, scientists have been making a study of um, what happens to exhausted birds. And it's interesting that... Um, that, that that fraction of the birds uh, the, of the population that do uh, reach a point where they are physiologically exerted, they um, they sleep with their head tucked in in a form of deeper sleep than is usual, almost like a sort of brumation arrangement, lower energy co uh, consumption and altered brain function. Uh, but of course, the this. Uh, altered state exposes them to a much higher risk of predation. Um, and so the, um, the birds in good condition um, sacrifice some energy to sleep more safely with head untucked, whereas birds that are struggling a little bit, um, they uh, give up vigilance um, so they can slip into this altered metabolic state and sleep uh, with their head tucked in, but it's much less safe. Um, and the warblers are obviously um, preyed upon by domestic cats and various birds of prey. And so these um, hotspots where the birds stay over, um, they become little feed stops for the predatory animals. Ah. It's really interesting because um, there's a huge number of birds around the world. Um, the... Uh, um, you know, even here in Australia, we have um, the the uh, various shearwaters who travel um, uh, way up to uh, Siberia and uh, back down to our east coast and Tasmania to breed each year. Um, we also have uh, dollar birds which shoot up to um, to uh, various parts of Indonesia and then spread back down out all over the country. And um, and there are a large number of uh, shorebirds and waterbirds which use the East Asian airways um, to get up to China or um, somewhere like that to breed. So um, we're, we're, we in Australia are, um, are exposed to uh, many of these birds that do this. And at the hospital we at Sugarloaf, we regularly get people... Who, um, who will bring us um, some of the shearwaters who adopt this exact pattern where they're exhausted, they fly into the, the, uh, the shore and, and just tuck themselves up and expose themselves, just, you know, trying to get uh, a little bit of um, rest and recuperation. And people, like dogs, will attack them and people will pick them up thinking they're they're injured or whatever um, and, um, and bring them into the hospital and... Um, and unfortunately, a lot of those birds, uh, going through the stress of being caught and taken to a hospital, they end up not making it. Yes, and they concluded that just like a long haul truck driver, Mark, I like this little paragraph they had, <laughs> or someone on a you have, you have an outstanding way of taking these wonderful articles and just distilling them down to the the essential sentence that's the that summarises <laughs> them, but also. Is, has the has the funny turn in it, and that's the sentence. Just like a long haul truck driver, these birds would benefit from a habitat where they can stop for a bite to eat, a restful sleep, and some meth. 
before they head off again, <laughs> Mark. So, yes, no, it's um, – I wonder if you can relate that to birds when they're brought into the clinic, Mark, about the the way they tuck their head I in or not, you know, as in as, – oh. yeah. There's, I've got not a doubt. Um, when I read this, I thought oh, that um, that does explain. I I don't know that they switch to that um, garden warbler uh, brumation, altered metabolic state. But there's no doubt that um, the thermal characteristics of the bird change when you know those high blood flow areas of the head are additionally insulated by being tucked under the wing. So um, even just in that regard, the birds that come into hospital that are sick, that are trying to conserve um, body heat and energy and, and uh, nutrients from their food, they will sit in that sick bird look, fluffed up a little bit to get extra insulation and put their their head behind their, their over their shoulder and under their wing. So... So I don't have no doubt there's at least a component of it that um, is applicable to birds in hospital, Brendan. Ah, yes. See, there you go. You can you can relate it back to actually something practical for veterinarians and technicians listening, Mark. Well, my my first news story is anal sac secretions, Mark. Um, as you know, I have a particular fascination with anal sacs, and in fact, I just took out the sutures from a bilateral anal gland removal earlier this week, Mark, and it was a dog client who for some reason they had the put had the fear of God put into them by the previous veterinarian um, with the thought of having surgery and removing the anal glands that were a bit of a mess in this dog. They were constantly blocking up and painful and becoming abscessed and infected and even ruptured several times, Mark, and this poodle cross, I think it was. Um, and I think we've only been seeing the dog for probably a couple of years and probably every at least every month or two um, treating it or at least expressing the anal gland. So I finally convinced it that we should remove the anal glands and um, all went well, so it was good. Um, and this story made me think of it because I thought this was very, very interesting because many species, not just cats, dogs, bears, pandas, skunks and hyenas, according to the article, use anal sac secretions as a chemical language. They also use them as defence as well, like skunks. Um, and the experiment was about the Kitty Biome Project, Mark, and how could you not feel good about something called the Kitty Biome Project, which is at the Genome Centre, where a postdoctoral researcher at, where are they, UC Davis College of Biological Science. So what they did, they obtained the anal sac secretions from one, Mark, one single male Bengal cat, that was volunteered to participate by its owner. They extracted the DNA for sequencing to identify the types of bacteria and took samples for chemical odour analysis. And basically they, they ended up showing that microbes make most of the chemicals or a fair percentage of the chemicals that make the scent in cats. Um, and they analysed the volatile chemicals given off by the bacteria and they focused on technology for detecting and characterising low levels of the volatile organic compounds. And uh, they identified and de or detected 67 different compounds released by the bacterial cultures and 52 of those were also found directly in the anal sac secretions. So 
what was the bottom line? The results supported the idea that the bacterial community, not the cat itself, produces many of the scents used by the cat to communicate um, that they we know they do by using anal gland secretion. So they want to follow this up by looking at more cats as they're understanding, thinking that if these scents are made by bacteria, why do the cats smell different from each other, Mark, if they have the same sort of bacterial population in there? And how do cats acquire the bacteria in the first place and do they change over life? So, yeah, I thought it was quite an interesting study and posed some interesting follow-up questions, Mark. And I agree with you entirely, Brendan. I think it's um, it's fascinating to think that, well, I suppose there's only two ways that there would be a difference in the, the you know, the spectrum, the range of volatile chemicals that made odour. Either the oils that go into the secretions of the anal sac are different, so the substrate, the bacteria, uh, metabolised to the volatile compounds is different or um, the population of bacteria is slightly different in different cats and that allows them to, you know, maybe have like a individualised, um, an individualised smell that, uh, that that they can be identified by. It gets back to, I don't know, it gets gets back to farts, doesn't it, Mark? I mean, when you think about it, our gut... Every conversation I have with you gets back to our farts. Our gut biome is, will be all different. No matter whether we've got the same bacteria in there, we'll have different percentages of of bacteria. No one person will be the same, will they? So I think it will be a similar sort of process. I would have thought in that of the particular bacteria they have in the anal sacs, it's always going to be a little bit different from the one next door. And, and, and maybe um, much like guts, um, if, if, the, if an animal is having um, problems with their anal sacs, some disease process, maybe we need to re-fornate them with a, a healthier anal sac gut population. So that's, that's a Great idea, Mark. So instead of a poo milkshake for, for these orphan marsupials that have <laughs> chronic diarrhea, we we fix these anal gland problems by an anal an anal um, milkshake, <laughs> an anal gland milkshake. Um, that's you might be onto something here, Mark. So perhaps we should be collecting the anal sacs secretions when we're sque- squeezing out anal sacs, Mark, and um, have a little anal sac bank. What do you think? A, a little um, reservoir a yes. collection, a bank. Yes. Yeah. No, I don't think we should do that. It would get um, quite smelly, wouldn't it? Um, and you'd probably want to keep separately each individual animal's anal glands, wouldn't you? Um, to to re- mix them up. No. Although, I reckon it'd be a good experiment to mix them all together and inject them back into into an animal that has chronic anal sac problems and see what happens. Well, you probably end up having to remove those anal glands, I expect. Um, <laughs> Which leads me, just before we go on to my next story, it is a, I've had the same problem as you. I always, when I talk to clients about um, anal sacectomy, I do talk about the, the, the slight risk that the, uh, in the literature you can regularly find concern for innovation of the anal sphincter in overzealous dissection. You can damage that and um, and render the anal sphincter atonic 
and some animals even become uh, fecally incontinent as a consequence. Um, but I think, uh, to be honest, um, I think that, um, that that risk is uh, overrated in the literature. Um, we've had, I've had a couple of dogs that have had um, uh, tumours, uh, benign anal sac growths that have entailed extensive dissection very deep in the the uh in that pelvic wall and um and i've got no doubt well the dogs were were fecally incontinent for um a week or two after the surgery um but um but those dogs returned to normal function and um and i I think it would be you'd have to be more than just unlucky and a little bit careless to have that problem and but i have had clients when I say, I think they just focus on the faecal incontinence bit. Yes, well, I agree, I agree, not unsurprisingly, 100% with what you say in there, Mark. And when I talk to clients, I, I honestly look them in the face and I say, look, um, the textbooks tell us and we're told at university that we could cause in permanent incontinence in this dog and or cat or whatever species we're dealing with. But to be honest, of all the anal gland removals I've done over the years, and I don't know how many you've done, Mark, but I'm sure I've done, you know, 30, 50, maybe, maybe more than that over the years, um, that not one of them has been a problem. And I do not know of any of the veterinarians I graduated graduated with or or since or, or, or any vets that I know of who have had, had one um, disaster. So, yeah. And... You mentioned about the big surgery um, case you had recently. I, we had a an aggressive adenocarcinoma um, anal gland in a dog probably eighteen months, two years ago, um, and it, it it initially I just thought it was an abscessed anal gland, um, and I did a pretty wide resection, and it did come back as a, a really aggressive adenocarcinoma, and it did progress from there it came back again and and it spread into the pelvic canal and uh it went to referral and, and they didn't want to try radiation or chemo um and ended up being euthanized because of the spread of this um, um tumor but um yeah even with that really extensive um um initial um surgery on it it um yeah it it it, it it coped fine and, and uh, touch wood, I've never had one or, or done one that's become incontinent and I've never heard of anybody of all, all the veterinarians I know have had one. We'll probably get a, a big yeah, raft of emails now of, of, of tales of, of disasters with it. But, yeah, I think it is vastly, I, I would say it's vastly over overemphasize the, the, the risk um, but it's always there um, without a doubt um, and I do mention it to the client and I do say look the risk is that yeah your dog becomes incontinent end of story but I, I then follow on and say look in my experience I've never had one that's been an issue and I don't know of anybody who've had one as an issue so there and you I think go the, the dogs are much better off having the surgery done yes my next story Brendan is well it's about a nightmare bug. It's about a battle. It's a war, in fact, the Great Spotted Lanternfly War. In Pennsylvania, about five years ago, the Great Spotted um, Lanternfly, a, a large, colourful plant hopper that occurs in Southeast Asia, um, established itself uh, as a, f uh, a feral pest. Um, and since then, it's gone ballistic. 
Um, like most of the plant hoppers, they suck sap um, and they, they uh, cause significant damage to trees and vines. Um, and uh, they, like many insects, um, they incompletely digest the complex sugars that they suck from the sap um, and they excrete um, uh, sugary rich droppings which um, the article calls euphemistically called honeydew um, and that uh, lands on decks and roofs and pools and cars and um, and homeowners and car owners are just um, well they're at their wits end Brendan and they are going to what I would consider extreme lengths to uh, to try and get rid of the lanternfly um, the State Agriculture Department suggests that the lanternflies threaten the $18 billion worth, a US dollars worth of Pennsylvania agriculture, including fruit trees, timbers, potatoes, and grapes. The bugs are expanding their range into New Jersey, Delaware. And when I read this part of the article, I thought, um, I thought of President Trump drawing a map with a little marker extending the range of the of the uh, build a wall, build a wall into into new states. Um, So uh, the the researchers are looking for ways to eradicate the, uh, the insect. Um, But I, who, I just don't, anyway, the lots of people (laughs) are are taking it, taking it on their own to try and uh, try and kill them. But it's, well, it, it, I worry that it's, Anyway, let's just uh, let's just um, the the one that really I I um I loved Brendan was that that one that you pointed out to me in the in the um I think it's the third last paragraph where one of the the yes <laughs> where is it third um, last paragraph yes is it is it um. Uh, yes, it's Jim, Jim Woods, who's uh, in the special forces of the Great Spotted Lanternfly War um, Regular Army, um, and to deal with the swarms of lanternflies that have been attacking his trees, Jim has turned a wet dry vac into an effective killing machine. He attached a piece of plastic bottle to the business end of the long wand and that allows him to capture many, many more of the insects with each pass. The insects in turn get sucked into a nylon stocking and Jim affects their extermination. He goes on patrol at least once a day, and he estimates that he's killed 40,000 of the bugs this year. But even this super soldier can get discouraged by the sheer size of the enemy force. Jim says, there are some days I just wanted to quit. (laughs) Ah, Jim, 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 Jim. He needs another hobby, Mark, apart from (laughs) killing these... um, these, Although there's yeah, nothing worse than a sap sucker, I think, Mark. So um, they need to certainly do something about it. Um, this article is interesting on so many levels, Mark. <laughs> um, did you notice the? Um, I'm trying to find it here. Um, here, the entomologist. Um, let's have a look. Where is the entomologist? Is that? No, there's the the um. There's... Oh, I can't find it. This is very good, um, very good audio, isn't it, Mark? Um, the entomo- en- entomologist's name was uh, 
I I cannot find it, Mark. It is um, Heather Leach, the entomologist. <laughs> there you go. So it made me worry a little bit about this um, this story. Yes. So yeah, they're a bit of a problem. They're pretty spectacular looking. Um, oh, crikey's! They look beautiful, don't animals, they? Animals, don't they? Um, yeah, these lantern flies. But yes, um, but yes, yeah, so they have this propaganda propaganda poster, and they talk about the lantern fly war and the army and the special forces. Um, so yes, um, and battalions of people um, and, and the um, the announcements at um, at minor league baseball games. Yes, yes, it was. Um, Quite bizarre, quite bizarre. Well, I don't know how to follow on from that, but I'm just going to tell you a little story, Mark. My very last news article here is about Carol and Vern. Carol and Vern went on a holiday in the US and they returned to the dog-friendly hotel in Montana, I think, um, and they made a horrible discovery that their seven-year-old border collie, Katie, was no longer in the room and she'd somehow managed to unlatch the door, or perhaps they'd left it open, or was spooked by the thunderstorm that had swept through the area, Mark, and they could not see her anywhere. And at the front desk, the attendant said she'd seen an anxious dog bolt out the front door hours before. Well, day one, Mark, day one. After the initial discovery, they spent the night frantically searching nearby neighbourhoods where they had alfalfa farms and homes and new shopping centres. and They were out until about 4am and they saw no sign of their lovely dog that they loved very much. And they sent some photos and they gave some um, handed around photos to the front desk attendant there and they began making and distributing flyers around the area, hundreds of them, Mark, absolutely hundreds of them. They did mail drops, they went to local sporting events, they posted on social media and, it, you know, lost pet internet networks and both of them, Mark, and I think this explains the extent of their um, of what they um, did following on. They're both former law enforcement officers, Mark. Um, they looked through abandoned buildings. Um, they treated it like a crime scene, Mr King said. Well, by day 15, Mark, by day 15, after a couple of weeks of searching, they decided to try some more extreme measures. They had ordered two game cameras. They recorded video. They um, tried to trap animals, hoping that, um, and they put food in there, like the cheese sticks that Katie preferred um, to try and co- coax her into a cage. Miss um, King, she started, began, um, she started jogging and biking around the neighbourhoods, hoping that her sweat, Mark, could signal the dog that her family was near. They also left T-shirts, used T-shirts, at strategic locations, Mark, hoping that Katie would sniff it out and and, um, then be seen. And they also left Katie's blanket and dog bowl there. Um, And she thinks she, she went on every single street in that whole area. Well... They still didn't find Katie, so oh, they later no. brought in hair shavings. They found some hair shavings, presumably from from Katie, and a couple of buckets of poo uh, from their horses back home um, with the approval from local farmers, and they spread it near the traps and other possible locations. So they're trying to, you know, attract Katie back to smells that she knew. Um, so later, after hearing speculation that Katie might have been on the move at night time, they acquired get this mark they went out and got some night vision goggles um to 
keep up the hunt and they spent hours out in the cold at night trying to capture a glimpse of Katie going across a field but they didn't see anything um, they caught several animals including the cat four skunks and a magpie mark in the traps um, by day 22 they were starting to get notices about potential sightings but some of them seemed pretty far-fetched and they looked around and they didn't see Katie um, and it would, or it would turn out to be a different dog that somebody had seen. Um, and day 37, Mark, you can see a bit oh, of a trend goodness. here. Day 37, she quit her job. Job She was working at this stage as a postal carrier. So she quit a dog, uh, her dog, she quit her job Boy, to return job. home um, with her husband continuing to search. Um, and she talked about taking some time off with the bosses and they wouldn't let her, so she just quit her job because Katie was more important. Um, so we come up to day 53, Mark, day 53. So a month and a half oh, into the search, they thought there's no way they will find her. They would, But it's a good news story. I'm, 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 I'm giving you the punchline already, Mark. Um, they stayed one more week, Mark, which they were about 250 miles away from home. And let's have a look. Um, if you were at day, day 53. Oh, that's day 53. Sorry. No, they decided to stay another week. Um, so if we go to would, day f- – yep, sorry. You would wait till day 60. Yes, you'd think. So day 57, on the morning of September the 15th, she, got, she had another tip from someone in a subdivision near the hotel. The resident said he was looking out the windows, confident that Katie was in his backyard. So she rushed over there and by the time they got there, the dog or whatever it was, was gone, Mark. So they started looking around in the fields nearby, searching with their binoculars and they found a couple that were out for a walk and they told them about their search and the woman pointed to a dog under a nearby tree. It was a border collie, which what Katie was, and they began calling Katie's name. And the dog was cautious at first, um, and everybody went silent, and she wandered over to the dog. And Katie leapt up and jumped at full speed into Ms. King's arm. Mark, there you go. Isn't that a lovely story? Then they took her to the emergency vet who learnt that it was Katie's, and they all cried, and everybody hugged, and... The world was good. So it is a good story. That's but, amazing. gee, some of the things, you know, 60, I would have given up, I must admit. Um, don't, my dogs aren't sat near me here at the moment, but day 57, I don't think I'd be too hopeful by the time um, you get over about day six or seven, Mark. Um, yeah, so, yes, but that's fantastic. And they have a picture of Katie there, I think, not long after she was picked up. And, um, yeah, she looked pretty bedraggled there, Mark, um, sitting in the back seat of the car. And we'll have a link to that. And we haven't mentioned our website, vetgurus.com. Um, we'll have a link to that particular story there, Mark. So, yeah. And the, that was from the New York Times. Um, and the, the headline was, she quit her job. He got night goggles. They searched 57 days for their dog. Um, that was a, that was a clickbait, Mark. So, yes. So I think we've um, excelled ourselves this week with our new stories, Mark. A, pretty, a, a very interesting batch of stories there, Mark. So we better jump into maybe part one of part two. Um, we're going to talk about rabbits again. And this week we will talk about myxomatosis because it is a particular disease that, 
I certainly get lots of queries from other veterinarians and, and veterinary nurses slash technicians, let alone clients, Mark, about myxomatosis. And we know there's certain things we can and can't do in, in different areas of, of the world. For instance, we cannot, there's no legal vaccine for myxo here in Australia. Um, so, yeah, we get lots of questions about, you know, what is it? Do we still see myxomatosis? Um, what are the clinical signs? How do we treat it? Can we treat it? Um, and what is the prevention um, that's recommended to keep my bunny safe from myxo? Mark, so let's jump in. What is it, Mark? Do you know what it is? <laughs> well, I did take it as I often do. One of the things about the podcast that I really, really enjoy is that I probably, there's a whole lot of things in my life that I've got like, a, you know, a, a, a basic understanding of that I have learnt at some stage. But um, it's almost like, like a review for me, myself. I, I do, at the beginning of each, uh, when we make the decision about the topic, I go and do a little bit of reading to make sure that I'm not saying anything in my usual fashion. That's a bit stupid. Um, so I did have a look at... Uh, the, um, the the fact that the myxoma virus is a pox virus from the genus Leporipoxviridae. Um, so yes, it's a pox virus. It is a pox virus. Yes. So, um, and we'll talk about the signs related to being a pox virus and a couple of the interesting sort of atypical variations of the classic myxo or myxomatosis um, that we see in rabbits, marks, um, and I. You know, I, th I think we'll keep it to, well, sort of the practical questions that we get commonly asked by other clients or other veterinarians or, or veterinary nurses, Mark, and that's what are the signs of it. So, um, and I'll, I'll take this if you like, and it's and it's <laughs> variable. It, it's it's incredibly variable, and, and I call it, some of them I call the per-acute signs, Mark, um, or the per-acute form of it where you may have a rabbit that is apparently well um, the night before and then it has the full-blown myxomatosis signs the next morning mark um, and we'll talk about the actual specific signs in two sex to the really chronic cases as well and we see um, both ends of the, the spectrum there mark and the chronic case ones maybe a rabbit that comes in with some of the very subtle early signs and the classic one there would be um, that I particularly um, always focus on is a chronic bilateral conjunctivitis mark so just sore eyes just slightly sore eyes or, or a mild bilateral conjunctivitis in the rabbit it may the client may come in and say look my rabbit it must be the hay he had um, last week um, he's a he, he or she must be allergic to the hay the new bale of hay that I purchased or the grass that I just put in there because he's just a little bit sore and he's blinking and he's got a bit of conjunctivitis um, and some of them can be that subtle mark and it may take several weeks from that point in order to develop some of the other classic signs we see with myxomatosis and I think most of our listeners Mark would know the the, the typical fulminant signs that we'd see with, with, with the end stage with myxomatosis and and I sort of sum, my usual summary for the for that mark is swollen bits. They swollen have bits. swollen bits, yes. So hot and or swollen nose, eyes, ears, urogenital region. Um, 
So the the testes in the boys, that the urogenital orifice um, with 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 males and females, hot hot and swollen, almost like um, doughy edematous um, ears, um, mouth, um, eyes, you know, chemosis, which is the, the swelling of the eyelids um, with the mark, and um, that's pretty pretty classic for sort of the end stage with a lot of them, um, and some of them at that end stage too will have the what's sometimes called the pneumonic form, um, which is where they have um, secretions as well. So they have um, discharges from the from the nose and or eyes as well, Mark, um, typically sort of that white pussy sort of discharge and they'd be showing pretty obvious respiratory signs as well with it. Um, um, some of them do have an obvious pyrexia at certain times um, and, and the thing to remember with that, with, with myxomatosis, is that it can be a waxing and waning pyrexia. So you may have a, a rabbit that you are suspicious of being one of these more chronic forms and it has the sore eyes, um, plus or minus, it's not quite right according to the owner for a few days or, or a couple of weeks. Um, and if you take the temperature of that, the rectal temperature of that rabbit and it comes back as, you know, high um, 42 or something like that um, degrees Celsius, then I would be very suspicious that we may have an early um, um, a, a myxomatosis case on our hands, Mark. But they don't have to have the pyrexia all the time. So it can be, it can be there sometime and it can not be there at other times, um, yeah. Um, there are a couple of other versions of it there, Mark, um, but I think the, the key to it is the progression of those signs and that we can have those per-acute ones where they can be a apparently normal um, and then within a day or so they can show those full-blown signs of swollen bits um, or we have may we may have a slow progression over several days or several weeks um, and the other key factor I always um, mention to veterinarians when when they think they have potential myxomatosis cases mark is is that they do tend to go in epidemics or outbreaks um, so and and I don't know whether you have that up there, Mark, in that, that it's pretty typical and that you'll know if there's um, um, myxomatosis happening in the pet rabbit population because you'll get phone calls from all the other vets around the region saying, hey, we've we've just euthanized a myxo case, um, and then you start seeing a bit of a rush on them. Um, so it's sort of a, a bit of a seasonal thing, and it sort of varies. I mean, and classically in Australia, sort of spring to autumn is when it happens, but, you know, you can get outbreaks at, at, at any particular time time in the year um but and, and in in certain regions so we may get it in western western melbourne region mark um and a big outbreak in that that region and it doesn't hit the rest of the the rest of the um urban area yeah. so i've got a question for you brendan it that certainly the you know what largely what you've said is replicated in our area we probably don't see as many of the chronic ones but um we definitely see those uh, outbreaks and we do associate them with the type of weather that's a little bit warmer and wetter in autumn and spring. Um, and, and our theory, at least, is that um, that's, there's a prevalence of uh, biting mosquitoes and midges who, who are, are transmitting the disease. I wondered whether um, uh, they are the only... How, how is it transmitted? Are the biting insects the only way that it can be... Um, the infection can travel between. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the one that everybody sort of focuses on, isn't it? The arthropod vectors, their mark, and, and and in particular the mosquitoes. And and you know we're we're talking regional here, but most of this applies worldwide. Um, and we'll 
talk about the differences with the vaccination availability um, shortly, Mark, when we talk about prevention. Um, yeah, so the arthropod vectors um, definitely, and, and I think you're spot on there with the with the outbreaks there in particular related to the weather and, and the breeding of mosquitoes. And when I talk about preventative strategies to clients, uh, that's one thing you need to sort of talk to them about. Don't have the the old swimming pool or the or the dam in the backyard, Mark, that's a, a breeding ground for mosquitoes. They need to get rid of that um, if if they if they want to have pet rabbits in the, in the backyard. If there's potential for for transmission via those arthropod vectors, but but the other two sort of spread um, other other two methods where it can how it can spread. Mark is is by well one is direct contact or fomites um, potentially, um, so direct contact with another another rabbit that has it, um, and that may be a wild rabbit. So again, here in Australia, for instance, it's it's trying to avoid if you're in a region where you do abut on nature reserves or whatever that that um, you're very careful about thinking where you put a, a rabbit hutch or maybe perhaps you should be having just indoor rabbits in that sort of situation so they're not having contact or, or, or access to close contact with wild rabbits there, Mark. Um, and those ones where they have those oculonasal discharges, Mark, there's definite... Um, transmission that way so if we have a, a rabbit that's coughing and spluttering or sneezing and spluttering um, in those sort of final stages um, or towards those final stages um, I'd be very worried of any in contact rabbits um, with transmission that way. And we always make a little bit of a point to our clients that um, that while um, mosquitoes are obviously the, the, the most common arthropod um, uh, um, agent which spreads the disease. Um, any um, insect uh, flies, or um, if they, they the the um, virus doesn't uh, replicate or need, um, you know, the the a particular insect to go through its life stage. It's just carried by the biting insect and uh, passes on to the next animal. So, um, so it's important to be aware that any of those insects can cause a problem. Yep, and that can in, even include things like fleas, Mark. Um, so, and you know, we see the occasional rabbit that has has fleas. Um, it's usually, in my opinion, an indicator of poor husband, pretty poor husbandry. Um, but also, yeah, the, so the flies. Flies, you recommend? Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd never say that to a client, would I? Um, yeah, um, and lice. It is, it um, is so in yeah. fact, those um, uh, fleas and lice are the main vectors, as I understand it, in within. Um, warrens that uh, the virus wipes out uh, warrens as those insects transfer it within the, the burrows the rabbits living in the wild so it can be any insect that does it yes and the clients need to be aware or owners need to be aware that it can be spread by sort of the fomites or contaminated objects mark so that includes things like you know what you'd think water bottles and, and feeding um, trays and the cages um, and you know in theory even even a human you know transmitting it um, um, if if they're not washing their hands or they've got particularly poor hygiene mark um, because the pots virus are reasonably stable in the environment so they're not a, not a virus that dies off you know super quick like some viruses um so yeah so 
But it is important to mention, Brendan, that while humans can act as uh, carriers, fomites, they can physically have it on their hands and transfer it between rabbits. It's not a zoonotic disease. No, the, the virus doesn't infect people at all and won't replicate in humans. So while, Absolutely. People, while yep. people can transmit it, they're just acting as a vehicle rather than a than a, a um, an, an agent in which the infection can flourish. Yes, and and that 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 infection market it usually you know typically would would with the virulent strains um, would result in death in probably you know at least within within a fortnight of of um, infection mark. Um, is is sort of your ballpark with that, but there's the, there are different strains and different virulency of those um, particular strains, and that will vary depending on which region of the world. So you know, I, I don't want to get too specific with that um, because it's it's variable, Mark, Mark, with them. So yeah, so our treatment options, Mark, and this is a, this is an interesting one, and this is um yeah, this is one that I've got fairly fairly. Um, fairly set views on Mark and, and I'm going to tell you a particular story with this. I did promise you that I would tell you a story of this, but as far as specific treatment, there is none. Um, so the treatment is, if you are going to go down that track, it's supportive care, um, you know, so intensive, intensive, um, intensive care and monitory um, to, um, and and probably um, treating them for secondary infections because I think a fair number of them end up dying from a from a from basically a pneumonia mark um, um, is, is sort of what gets them in the end. If I'm, um, I may be I may be wrong with that, but I'm pretty sure that's what happens with them. Um, but my and my usually and, and so they'll go into gut stasis and all the typical rabbit dying the um, signs that you'll see with any rabbit when they're when they're getting very very unwell they'll often get very low rectal temperatures marks so they'll get a you know their their rectal temperature will get well below 37 35 even lower than that degrees celsius so you know well well below um you know, ninety-eight to ninety-five Fahrenheit or something like that, um, and um, yeah, I've certainly never had any of that, and I don't treat is is my recommendation, um, and I've never um, heard of any that have been have responded to treatment. And again, it's a bit like what we're talking about with the anal sac. You're reading the textbooks, and you may you may be told at university um, that potentially you can treat them by supportive care but um, I think it's a cruel thing to do and it's you know my, my comment with this particular disease would be um, it's invariably fatal it, it would sort of be my throwaway line with it Mark and the, and the story that sort of drives it home for me is um, probably 10 or 15 years ago a very good veterinary colleague of mine I went through university with um, who lives up north um, in northern Australia um, she phoned up and said her um, and her, her family still lives down here in Melbourne and said oh I think one of our rabbits has mixo and um, I went through the process of saying look I don't think um, 
No, no, actually, no, that's the second part of the story. The first part was she was trying to treat one up north, I think it was in Darwin at the time, and a client's rabbit, and she phoned me up or emailed me or both and said, um, should I treat this rabbit? And I said, well, there's no specific treatment. Um, my advice is, is that it's a quality of life issue and, and it's invariably fatal and I recommend euthanasia. And she said, oh, okay, thanks for that, Brendan, and um, <laughs> went and tried to do the um, supportive care with it and um, kept it alive for three or four days before she euthanized it. And then not long after that, I think it was in a few months, yeah, one of her own rabbits um, that was still being kept by her mother um, and, and, and father um, here in Melbourne developed myxomatosis. Um, and she phoned me up again and said, look, mum and dad have taken the the rabbit to the local vet and it's almost certainly mixo and there was a there was a bit of an outbreak at that that time so I was fairly confident that that was going to be what the diagnosis was correct and and um, appropriate um and and without even prompting her she said look I, I tried to treat that one you you mentioned a few months ago and um, um you were right I should have euthanized it and um she she asked her mum to to euthanize the rabbit as soon as as soon as practical yeah. It is a common so, – we, we regularly see – because I suppose that whole thing where you described before that the rabbit's fine one night, people come out the next morning and they've got pussy eyes and edematous bases to the ear and, uh, and, and it's a big – and then they bring it to us and we go, oh, sorry, we've got to euthanize your rabbit. Um, it's a big adjustment for people and they don't, often don't deal with it well. Um, and like you said, even people that uh, – that have experience don't necessarily in the first instant, instance adjust well. Is there times that you do get caught with clients, Brendan, and you have they just will not let you euthanise the animals? Do you do particular things to, you know, maybe give the clients a day or two to realise what's going on um, uh, before the euthanasia is yeah. effective? I mean, the, the, yeah, the difficult ones are those very early on chronic cases where you just do not know whether it is mixo initially. Um, you'll know when that keeps coming back every few days and it's getting worse and worse. So eventually it will hit that hit that point where it's really obvious there. But um, those those ones are quite difficult. But, yeah, if you do have that client where it's an obvious myxomatosis case and, and you're struggling to convince them that, hey, you know, um, the chances are that this animal is not going to survive, um, I just fill them full of pain relief, Mark. Yeah. So, you know, they would be going home on, on very high doses of meloxicam um, and at least I feel a little bit a little bit um, happier that the animals at least um, um, hopefully um, not in quite as much discomfort as it was when it walked in the clinic um, and perhaps multimodal analgesia and get them back every day and we yeah. just go through the same thing again and again and again. But um, yeah, I think that's rare, you know, that, that we get one where the client would really fight for that sort of thing, you know, and they're the ones where I'd, yeah, push towards the, you know, you're almost doing palliative care and overdose in the animal with pain relief, you know, to help them along the way, is, if that makes sense, yeah. is, is the way I'd, I'd probably try and, try and um, go with that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the, yes. the internet by and large is our friend, but in this particular instance, I think the internet can give some clients false hope. And you talked before about, um, about uh, this being an invariably fatal disease, and I would take exactly that, that, um, language and I think 
if you do read online, particularly some rabbit forums, there are discussions about, oh, with supportive care, this rabbit survived. But my take on that is that, that those rabbits weren't properly diagnosed to start with and they may have had a conjunctivitis um, that was tentatively diagnosed as mixo, but um, if they recovered, I'm tipping it wasn't mixo to start with. Yes, I agree. I agree. I mean, there is a, there is a couple of other other forms of it, and the, the classic one that I've um, well, it's, um, unusual one that I've seen um, a few times, and it's very dramatic. Is one where they could do develop pox lesions, Mark, and I've had a, a litter, and this 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 is the ones I've seen has been um, very young kids. So it's I think it's related to the fact they've had some sort of partial immunity from there from the mother there but um, still developed um, an infection there, Mark, and they develop a, a nodular form and, and the whole face and um, head becomes covered in these really horrible pox lesions. I'll, I'll send you a couple of pictures of them. They're incredibly dramatic um, looking. Um, and then they develop the, the, the other secondary signs as well um, down the track. But, um, yeah, they can get, you know, so don't forget that it is a, you know, the myxoma virus is a pox virus and it can cause um, classic sort of skin lesions or swellings or, or pox lesions in them as well. Um, we should try, So our prevention, Mark, so our treatment options are, well, we don't recommend treatment um, and we, we recommend euthanasia. And I think you'll find most of the rabbit veterinarians um, worldwide would probably say the same thing. Um, um, Prevention-wise, well, it's it's vaccinating um, where available or legal um, and typically the sort of two vaccines that are used, um, the Nobivac Mixo vaccine um, is used in the UK and some other countries as well, Mark, and the other one is, and, and, and they're, atten they're, they're attenuated live vaccines and that's the reason why they are... They are not available in certain countries, including Australia, in that they're worried of the possibility that that will cause um, issues with um, resistance with with wild rabbits um, if if that vaccine is used. I think that's the main reason, Mark. But I don't see that as a valid reason um, because there already is a reasonable amount of partial resistance or, or more than partial resistance in in wild rabbits in Australia, Mark. So, you know, my, my thought is, and there's ongoing. Well, um, campaigns isn't there, Mark, to try and try and um, get the myxomatosis vaccine here in Australia, and whether or not we will get it, I, I don't know. But my personal opinion is that we should have it um, to stop horrible deaths of of these pet rabbits, Mark. And I don't think it will have much much um, deleterious effect on the supposed, you know, feral species uh, of, of rabbits that are out there, Mark. Um, what's your thoughts on that? I think that, um, that what you say uh, is precisely true. I do understand, though, that... Um you know the estimates of the the benefit, the financial benefit of the myxoma virus to Australian agriculture is between two hundred million and a billion dollars each year. That if we if the rabbits were wild rabbits were resistant to that virus, that would be the cost to Australian agriculture. So, despite the fact that I feel on very safe scientific ground saying that there's there's remote chance that um, a vaccine would uh, change the the uh, the effect on wild rabbits. I can understand authorities being a bit um, cautious. Um, the other thing I get, oh, and, and I understand why rabbit owners get so worked up about this. I 
I struggle with, uh, you know, we talked about the lantern bug and probably the most likely way that's going to be controlled in Pennsylvania is some, um, the introduction of some virus or disease that um, that knocks those things on the head if the scientists can figure it out. Um, oh, invertebrates, I worry about, you know, myxoma and Khaleesi as, as control agents, the rabbits that die from those things, um, the, the, you know, they suffer, and I, um, I, even though it's possibly a billion dollars a year to agriculture that is saved, um, I, I that's it's not a good thing, Brendan. Are you there? Have I lost you? Yeah, you <laughs> lost me, um, and you know why you lost me. I was just trying you to look to up sleep. a couple of the ref. <laughs> No, I I went to mute as usual. Um, yes, I was just reading the wiki. I looked up the Wikipedia article on myxomatosis then, Mark, um, and there's a little article, a paragraph on vaccination and myxomatosis in Australia, Mark, saying that it's currently prohibited and there's at least one campaign to allow the vaccine for domestic pets. The Australian Veterinary Association supports the introduction of a safe and effective effective myxomatosis vaccine, Mark. Um, And I was just trying to look up that policy statement. Here we go. (laughs) You're the the same as me. And um, I think I might have... I was going to say, I'm surprised to do with that policy. You just couldn't (laughs) cite that because it has your finger marks or your fingerprints all over it. (laughs) I was looking forward to see if there's any um if if there's any note about my name there and um thank goodness there isn't yeah um but I think I did have a little bit to do with that um yes so um where were we <laughs> we're, just, we're talking about um vaccination yeah so so um so my the bottom line with the vaccination yeah use the vaccine in the countries where you are able to use it remembering that the myxomatomas vaccine as far as i know is not 100% um, protective or close to like a lot of vaccines um or or as a lot of vaccines are close to 100% protective for the disease there there against this one isn't um regular boosters are required and I can't remember what the the booster um, I'd expect that it would be you know two or three vaccinations for a young animal and then um, yearly boosters I think Mark um, but I wouldn't know because we don't use it um, here Um, yeah so vaccination Um, other prevention one is um, we've already mentioned a couple of them avoiding contact with wild rabbits um trying to avoid the vectors um and this is i don't know whether you get this one mark um we get this from clients a lot you know how do i mozzie proof as in mosquito proof my hutch and and my typical answer to them is it's impossible to completely mozzie proof a hutch um because often the rabbits will just put a foot through the 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 fly screen type wire that they put on there um but i do mention that um mosquitoes are typically more active at at dawn and and potentially at dusk as well mark so one option is if they want to go to the effort of doing it is to drape the hutch if they have an outside hutch with um well, with with with, um, with wire mark um, before just before dusk, and then um, remove the remove the wire again after 
after dawn the next day, but it does mean they have to do that every single day. Get up and get down because and 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 the the analogy I use is is like um, it's like being bitten by a mosquito if you're in in um, anywhere in the world, Mark. Um, you can never have complete. Um, faith in the mozzie proof netting that you use whether you're camping or you're in a in a five-star hotel mark um so you have to resort to other other techniques like um taking anti-malarial tablets if you're in a malarial region rather than just slapping on you know sunscreen um insect repellent there is a couple of other things that we ask our clients to do um there are some new um you know, the ultraviolet light insect traps with some um, pheromones, which seem to be very effective at uh, catching mosquitoes. It's good to uh, have those around. Um, you know, whenever you have, uh, it's important to anything that traps water, um, uh, plant, um, drip trays, uh um, toys that are left, anything that mosquitoes might breed in, um, it's important to make sure that uh, that those are all tipped out and it's dry. Um, and um, and I like it's another reason to have revolution on uh, the, on your rabbits. Um, I reckon, Brendan, that uh, it's part of that uh, care process you were talking about, pre- preventing external parasites um, and uh, and maybe having just a little bit of a repellent action to some biting insects, um, that's a good thing to have uh, some selamectin on your rabbit, I reckon. My, my question with that, Mark, is... How effective do you think some of these sort of topical treatments, or or even or treatments like the selamectin that's absorbed into the into the bloodstream, Mark, as far as preventing a mosquito bite? Um, do you think they have an actual repellent action? Because my concern has always been that no matter what sort of product you put on or in the animal. Um, if you want to prevent the myxomatosis, if you've got to prevent the mozzie biting in the first place and, and if if it bites and, and dies, sure the mozzie's dead, but it's it's um it's caused the infection with, with, with the mix. So I think that, that you're entirely correct. The selamectin does not prevent that bite. But I think if you the, the logic I use, this is my logic. Um I know my logic doesn't always apply, but um, it prevents the the you know the lice and the fleas, other vectors. Yes. But it also means that let's say my rabbit has picked up an infection, um, and um, it means that that I'm not going to transfer that infection to other rabbits. Does that make sense? It's an epidemiological stop point. Yes. So. I see your logic there, Mark. I see your so logic. I fully take yes. on board um, the, I, I don't want to mislead my clients and pretend that the medication I'm giving them is preventing the mosquitoes because it's clear that um, that uh, particularly selamectin does not do that. Um, so I should. And I th- and I think when, and and I'm sure you get the same with clients who say, "How about using?" Uh, mosquito repellent on them um, how about using some of the mosquito repellents that are used on dogs for for fly myosis on the ears um, you know muscaban is the one that's commonly used here in australia mark um, i get clients asking about using those mosquito coils those pyrethrum or permethrin whatever they are coils that um, you can you can light a bit like a candle um, 
all those sorts of products and and my usual comment to them is um don't know but i don't think they're going <laughs> to help that much um unfortunately i think they probably help yeah, for the 15 uh, minutes after you put them on or light them but but yeah. after that yeah i have my doubts that they have any lasting effect but yeah, those you, you mentioned about that those mosquito, you know, those UV lights and mosquito zappers and those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I, um, yeah, you know, there's something, there's something. Um, that's what they should be using for those moths, Mark. <laughs> um, those, you know, variation mega, 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 mega UV light zappers. You know, and and Rome, I could see the army heading heading down with big trucks of these huge banks of lights, <laughs> um, with, with um, electrified um, wire in front of them to to destroy them all. Yes, um, yes. Um, gee, we we're way over time this week. Um, um, our our internet provider or our, our, our um, supporter um, who, who we put up all our um, podcasts on mate, might be pulling the plug next week, Mark. You never know. Um, who knows? Um, well, we better get out of here. So, yeah, and I, and just quietly listener um, or listeners, I know we've got more than one <laughs> these days, um, we, Mark and I were thinking of having two um, viruses as part of the main topic this week and Obviously, we um, struggled to fit one in the one hour that we've been rabbiting on again for Mark. So next week, we may cover one of the others, um, although we've done rabbits three weeks in a row. So I think we will be doing a non-rabbit topic next week. And, scales um, or birds? Uh, scales we'll talk- or feathers next week? Scales or feathers. And yes, please send an email, vetgearers at gmail.com and... Send us a topic or topics that you want us to talk about, and that includes all you listeners in Kazakhstan. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.